What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of reading, autism, and folklore. First, we'll hear from the author Taryn Matheru about how his books are helping reluctant readers learn to read. Then we'll talk with Drs. John Cox and Shannon Tass about their roles in a recent study on autism and academia. After that, we'll hear from Jill Rudy about the role of folklore in our community. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table to talk with librarians from around Utah about kids, books, and life. Along with our interviews, we'll have story time with Annabelle Lee by Edgar Allan Poe, and we'll hear from some local kids about their favorite books. But before all that, let's step into my world. Rachel's In a recent conversation I had with some fellow teachers, we got into a discussion about reading logs. I think most adults out there will know what I'm talking about. These are those logs that children bring home from school that ask them to record a number of minutes they have been reading and then often ask for a parent's signature too. I know there are lots of teachers out there who use these logs as a significant part of their independent reading program, which is admirable because their intention is to get kids reading more, and especially to get kids to read more outside of school. But personally, I join with many other educators when I say that I believe these kinds of logs are actually preventing kids from reading. How many students have filled in a log and not actually read that number of minutes? How many parents feel like they're forcing their children to sit down and read for 20 minutes just for the sake of these logs? So if we're not reading, or if we're feeling forced to read, which is really not the way we want to motivate anyone to do anything, then I see that there's a fundamental problem with reading logs. They really can take the fun out of reading. Educators also talk about how reading logs don't tell us if a student has finished a book, or even if they've really read it. They also talk about reading flow and how sometimes we just need to get lost in a book and not have to worry about how much time we spend. So for me, traditional reading logs are one of those methods that we sometimes use in education that might not be doing the exact thing we want them to do. For me, dialogue about books or developing a reading plan or other approaches are much better ways to encourage reading. So next time you see a reading log, you may want to consider just what it's doing to develop a child's identity as a reader. And if it's not working, then maybe it's time to consider the less than positive feelings we have about reading logs here at Rachel's World and possibly find another avenue to getting your child to fall into reading. Rachel's World. Each and every child has the capacity of becoming a lifelong reader, but sometimes they just need to find the right book or author. Today, I'm very excited to be on the phone with one of my personal favorite authors, Taryn Matheru. Welcome, Taryn. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to introduce your work to our listening audience today. So to start out, why don't you describe a little bit about your books and what your books are like for those that haven't read them to kind of entice them maybe into to thinking about reading them. So my books are often described uh, as a mix between Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings and Pokemon. So if that tickles your fancy, uh, then those are things that you enjoy. You may enjoy my books. The story is about an orphan boy who discovers he has the ability to summon demons and then goes to a magical military academy where he learns how to control his powers. It's a book that's targeted at 11 plus, um, but actually I have a a large audience with adults as well. In fact, I'm I'm quite popular in the U.S. military uh, for some reason. It's very much like Name of the Wind in that uh, a lot of adults enjoy it as well. So it has a wide rating audience, both male and female, and it's a teen fantasy novel. So my very interesting question that I wanted to ask you is, 
where did this start? Because this is such a unique combination. When you describe it of all of those elements, I can definitely see that it brings all of the action and adventure of all of those different kinds of stories that you were describing. So where did this come from? Where did it start? So the concept for the book very much stems from all my favorite things in fantasy. So, you know, I love kind of boarding school settings for fantasy books. So that went in, um, you know, very much like the Earthsea Quartet or Harry Potter, uh, The Worst Witch, uh, among others. And, um, and then, I, you know, I love multiple fantasy races, such as in Lord of the Rings and Skyrim and many other fantasy stories. So in that went, and uh, I love uh, kind of epic battles between races with diverse cultures and political intrigue, um, and that all went in. Um, and I love mythical creatures from different mythologies around the world, and I love the idea of having them as companions and pets. Of course, that went in as well, and I love the idea of being able to summon creatures from nothing, and, and that went in. So it was very much a mix of, of all my favorite fantasy things kind of amalgamated into one book. That, I think, is one of the keys that makes this your book so wonderful is because you seem so passionate yourself about all these books. And I also think that that's one of the reasons that it appeals to a very specific audience. I know that I found as a librarian and teacher that particularly for reluctant or struggling readers, your books are like the perfect fit. So have you found that to be true, too? Oh, absolutely. So um, in uh, the United Kingdom, I actually work with a lot of literacy charities, for example, Book Trust, which is one of the largest literacy charities in the world. And they often use my books as their go-to book for reluctant readers, particularly for teenage boys. But um, obviously, my readership is quite evenly split with both male and female readers. But they found that teenage boys, particularly those who are kind of reluctant readers, perhaps they tend to spend a lot of time playing video games. And my book has a lot of video game inspiration, so a lot of video game fans get on with my books. They found that my books work particularly well as for switching reluctant teen boy readers onto uh, the book. So that's something that I recommend. And I guess my favorite messages that I receive, and I receive maybe two a week, comes from parents whose sons didn't read they bought them for, bought my books for their son, and now their son is obsessed. They've read the whole series in, in less than a month, and they're desperately trying to find out what other books I've written or if there's anything similar I can recommend to keep that going. And, and that's something that I really, really appreciate and, and, and makes me think that what I'm doing is, is worthwhile. It certainly is worthwhile because I've seen that definitely myself. From your own perspective, what do you think it is about your books that connects so deeply with these kinds of readers? What elements do you think, um, from your perspective, are standing out to them? So I I try to model my writing style on a a fluid, easy reading kind of technique. So it it allows the reader to be pulled along very easily. The chapters are short and fast-paced and punchy. So it it doesn't feel like a slog when you're getting through them. And they end on cliffhangers quite often. So the reader's kind of pulled along the story very swiftly. There's very little kind of extraneous detail and and, um, long-winded descriptions. It's very much an action-packed, fast-paced book that that kind of reader gets on with very well. But also traditional readers of of, of normal fantasy books, it, it doesn't read particularly differently. It just happens to focus on those elements that make for an easy reading experience. It's obvious from the way you talk and your involvement in in charities that literacy is something pretty important to you. So why is that? Why is literacy and engaging readers important to you not only as a writer, but maybe just as a human being in the world trying to make the world a better place? Why is literacy so important? I mean, literacy, I think, is one of the most important things for a growing mind. It teaches it so much. I mean, fluency of language, critical thinking, abstract thoughts, the ability to uh, picture things and um, imagine things, empathy. You know, there's just so many different skill sets and, uh, you know, a wider vocabulary, uh, the ability to explain things, the ability to describe things. It's just such an important thing. And it's a travesty that so many kids around the world, and particularly in America as well, don't have the habit of reading. They never picked up that desire or that habit. And um, I think part of, it's partly to do with the prescription of books at schools, where um, often a student's first book, or, or one of the very first books at least, that they're given is a book that, that's very, very old and, and perhaps is quite hard to read. It's quite dry. It's, it's considered a classic, but it's a classic for adults rather than children. 
and they're forced to analyze these books and read them and try and understand them, and they don't get to choose. And I think the best way to get a kid to read is to take them to a local bookstore and just let them run wild, go and find a book that they themselves want to read that they've picked out that interests them, and let them read it and enjoy it and build that habit. And then maybe later you can start challenging them with slightly harder books that perhaps don't necessarily appeal to everything they're into, but they would still get something out of because they've now picked up that habit. And I think that perhaps we're going about it the wrong way, starting them with the hard books and getting them to kind of view reading as a chore or something that's not enjoyable. Well, you're preaching to the choir, at least sitting in this seat, because I totally believe exactly what you're saying. I, I wish we could open those, um, those elements more to readers. And I think your books are a perfect example of how something that is exciting and well-paced can be so engaging. You mentioned empathy a little bit earlier, and that's one of the themes that I really appreciate in your books, this beautiful sense of empathy, not only for the people around us, but for other people that are people or creatures or things that are different than us, but also kind of empathy for ourselves and and caring and understanding ourselves. Is, is that something that you um, hoped would be a part of these books and part of what readers might take away from your books? I mean, when I wrote the books, I certainly wasn't aiming to put a message in the books or to preach or to teach anything in particular. I really did just want to write a fun, action-packed fantasy romp that people would enjoy. But inevitably, um, a part of the writer's personality and the writer's um, views on the world will make their way onto the page. And I'm I'm very much somebody who's uh, kind of pro-empathy and pro-kindness, being good to other people, being understanding of other cultures. I'm also trying to create a realistic world. And if you, you know, in our world, you look around you, there's plenty of racism. And if you're creating a, and also a financial inequality and social inequality, when you're creating a fantasy world set in a medieval time with actual nobility, you know, in a feudal system, of course there's going to be social inequality. You're creating a world with multiple fantasy races, of course there's going to be, you know, they're, they're actively, actually different species rather than races as we have in the real world. So of course there would be racism and, and, and you know, kind of hatred that spews between individuals within those species. And that's, those are two things that are addressed in the books, but it's, it's certainly not done in a, in a preachy way. It just, it's just a way of making this world more real, and the good characters are certainly good. And I think we'd all agree that non-racists are good and racists are bad. And in this world, that's very much the case. You know, the, the characters who, who hate other races are, are, are very much um, nasty and unpleasant characters, and the ones who are, are hoping to unite people and, and, and uh, show empathy and love are, are the good characters. And I, I, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily a lesson. I think it's just a natural progression of, 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 of what's real. Thank you so much, Taryn, for all of your insights and especially for your great books. Taryn Mathrew is the author of the very popular Summoner series. Up next, it's Story Time with Annabelle Lee by Edgar Allan Poe, read by Daniel Mesta. It was many and many a year ago, in a kingdom by the sea, that a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of Annabel Lee. And this maiden she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. I was a child, and she was a child, in this kingdom by the sea. But we loved with a love that was more than love, I and my Annabel Lee, with a love that the winged seraphs of heaven coveted her and me. And this was the reason that, long ago in this kingdom by the sea, a wind blew out of a cloud chilling my beautiful Annabel Lee, so that her highborn kinsman came and bore her away to me, to shut her up in a sepulchre in this kingdom by the sea. The angels, not half so happy in heaven, went envying her and me. Yes, that was the reason, as all men know, in this kingdom by the sea that the wind came out of the cloud by night, chilling and killing my Annabel Lee. But our love, it was stronger by far than the love of those who were older than we, of many far wiser than we, and neither the angels in heaven above nor the demons down under the sea can ever dissever my soul from the soul of the beautiful Annabel Lee. For the moon never beams without bringing me dreams, 
of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. And the stars never rise, but I feel the bright eyes of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. And so all the night tide I lie down by the side of my darling, my darling, my life and my bride, in her sepulchre there by the sea, in her tomb by the sounding sea. One of the things I love about being at a university is I get to learn from great researchers. We are so excited today to welcome two of those researchers from our university into the studio. We welcome Dr. John Cox from the BYU Counseling Center and Dr. Shannon Task, a professor of statistics here at BYU. They are here to discuss with us some of their research that shows us how young adults with autism can have success in an academic setting. Welcome. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for inviting us. One of the projects that you're working on right now has to do with transitions into college for students that are on the autism spectrum. So, Dr. Cox, would you explain to us a little bit about kind of what is the scope of that study and what are you hoping to find? Yeah, so we're trying to get some archival data from BYU regarding students on the spectrum and compare their academic record to the academic records of their neurotypical peers. We're, we're trying to investigate whether there is a difference in the experience in college of students on the spectrum, on average, compared to their peers that don't have autism. And there's not really anything that we're hoping to find. We're just, this is an investigative study looking at whether there is difference. There's a lot of literature out there that says that there is a difference, that students on the spectrum generally experience more difficulties, but there's no actual hard, fast data on that. There's individual stories but, but nothing in the aggregate. And so we're, we think that we have an opportunity here to look at something that hasn't been looked at before. And either way, whether we find that there aren't differences or whether we find that there are differences, I think that that's valuable information to know. I would definitely agree. I think finding stuff is great, but not finding stuff is also great. Right. Dr. Tass, part of your role in this is to, to run the statistics and to run the data. So how do you see that, particularly when you're talking about the statistical side of things, when we actually don't find any connection between the data? As a statistician, how is that important to you? So either way, it's always interesting to see what the data will will tell us and you know, sometimes not finding things can just, yes, kind of say, well, oh, that maybe that thing that we suspected was true is not actually true and trying to find evidence of it in the data. Well, I think particularly in this case, finding evidence of it and, or finding the non-evidence of it is really important because like you say, there's only really kind of anecdotal evidence in this, particularly with this academic transition or academic success. So I know, Dr. Cox, you work very closely with a lot of students. So what are maybe some of those anecdotal types of things that you started to base this study on? Yeah, I I work with a lot of students on the spectrum who come into the counseling center here at BYU with various difficulties. Most of them experience some level of anxiety, and uh, that anxiety can, can really affect their performance in school and uh, also in the social realm of things, which is huge at college, especially here at BYU. A lot of them also experience depressive symptoms and uh, other comorbid symptoms. And so anecdotally, clinically, I see a lot of students who have a, a difficult time transitioning to college and being able to function the way that they thought they would, the way that their parents thought they would, and and it it's very discouraging to them, and it, it sometimes breaks my heart to see how hard it is for them. So we try and do what we can to help them work on those difficulties, both the social stuff and the more psychological, uh, psychopathology stuff, to try and help them function better in school and enjoy their time in college more. I would see that as being really challenging, particularly for students on the spectrum, because one of their great challenges, of course, is with the social interactions. 
and leaving behind all of your social supports that you've built over your lifetime and coming into a situation where you may not have as many social supports or they may be different social supports or the expectations of interaction with those social supports are so different that that could be extremely anxiety producing and make it very, very difficult to make that transition. So how do we go about maybe just kind of basically helping with these kinds of transitions? What do we need to pay attention to? I've thought about that a lot, actually, and I've had a lot of parents approach me I get emails or calls, and the parents will tell me that their students were accepted to BYU. How can they help them to be ready to come to BYU? Uh, These are parents of students with autism. And so I have thought about it a lot, and I think that one of the best things parents can do is during junior year and senior year of high school, work really hard at consciously decreasing the level of support that the parents mm-hmm. give the students, but doing it in a controlled way, and maybe even you know working with a psychologist, uh, a professional, to help do it in a way that doesn't remove too much support so that the students start failing, but also gives the students the opportunity to start learning to be more independent and structure their own time and structure their own efforts. And, uh, you know, I mean, this could include life skills like doing their laundry and, and cooking and doing chores. You know, the more that parents can work on giving them the opportunity to manage their own time and effort and not have parents providing so much structure, the better prepared they're going to be for college. Because that way the parents are going to see and the student or the student may see before they graduate high school whether they can manage in a, in a place where suddenly they're just on their own. They have almost no support or structure that they're used to. And parents often don't realize the amount of support and structure they give their students, mm-hmm. especially students on the spectrum, oh, yeah. during high school. And so they think that they're going to be fine, and then they get to college, and it's just surprising how difficult it can be. Well, I mean, it, college is difficult even for That's neurotypical right. students, right? That's I right. Mean, I mean, we, we all probably had some problems when we started college, and, and we don't have any of the, the kind of structures or needs that a student on the, the spectrum can have. I hear your passion for this topic, Dr. Cox, but Dr. Tass, why are you passionate about this topic? Why, why is this something as a statistician that you think it's really important for, for you to add your voice into these kinds of studies to help us understand more about students on the spectrum and how we can support them better? Yeah, well, I that's a good question. I, I as a statistician, am passionate about a lot of different types of data. I that's one thing I love about my field is just being able to work in all sorts of different areas. But particularly, I, I got involved in autism several years ago just with the research group. And John approached me about being involved in this project. And I just, I don't have anyone personally in my life that I know that has autism. Um, although I know I have friends that have children with autism. And I guess I just, kind of like John was saying, it's just... I know how hard life can be and these these uh, kind of difficulties um, when our brain doesn't work quite right, I guess, or work maybe the way that others do. It, it can just make it so much harder. So I just I just find it very interesting and very helpful to use, to look through the data look to, and see what, what might help, what might give people hope, I guess. I love that statement that you say to give people hope, because I think that the research you do does do that, right? It helps people see things in a new way. It helps give them a new view of what they might do. And having that analysis and that data analysis just adds to that. So I I, I love your passion, too, along these lines. I, I have an example yes, of that. Yes, please do. Okay. Please do. Yeah, I'd love to hear so it. So last year, we published a study, Shannon and our research team, on therapy outcomes at the BYU Counseling Center uh, for individuals on the spectrum. And this type of study had never been done before for students on the spectrum for autism. Uh, It's a naturalistic study, meaning just looking at therapy as usual for people with autism. There's There are studies out there about specific CBT protocols and specific types of therapy in a very structured way, but nothing just looking at normal therapy 
there are so many students on the spectrum who attend therapy, who participate in therapy, yeah. and not just students, but but children, adolescents, and adults on the spectrum. Many of them go to therapy, and we don't really know whether therapy, as usual, works for them. Yeah. So we got data from the counseling center, and we have a great system at the counseling center where we've collected data for a couple of decades. And we were able to get that data and identify people who were on the spectrum and people who might have been on the spectrum. And then, thanks to Shannon, Shannon was able to clean that data in a way that we were able to analyze it and compare the therapy outcomes of the students on the spectrum compared to their neurotypical peers. And the analyses showed that students with autism actually benefit from therapy to the same extent as their their neurotypical peers. However, it takes them twice as long to get to that benefit. And sometimes sometimes they can deteriorate first before they get better. And those are all like really sophisticated findings that have never been shown before for autism that Shannon was able to do because of her expertise. I love that. That is and it's so insightful even for me like, you know, I have children with autism in my life, some nephews. And and so even just having this knowledge now of, oh, yeah, therapy does work, but there may be some back, you there know, maybe spe- some bumps, that, in, the bumps road. in the road and there right. may be some back steps and it's going to take longer to get to that offers that beautiful hope that you were talking about. I really, truly appreciate both of you today. Just seeing your passion for this topic and seeing your understanding of of how your research can help us see this topic in such a new way is is amazing. And I appreciate you coming in today and sharing it with our listening audience. Thank you. Thank you. We're happy to be here. Dr. John Cox is from the BYU Counseling Center, and Dr. Shannon Task is a professor of statistics here at BYU. Now, let's hear from Clara Goodwin as she goes out to Canyon Crest Elementary to hear from kids about their favorite books. What is your favorite book, and why is that one your favorite? My favorite book is probably The Hunger Games by Susan Collins. It's so interesting to think that every year they would bring 24 people in, two from each district, and then they would just fight till the last person. And I really like the relationships between the, the people in the books. I like the Harry Potter series because I kind of felt like I was a wizard or witch at the school and I was doing all the things with Harry, but like no one can see me or something. <laughs> and I just, I just felt like on the train I could like taste the food and like just experience the whole place. So I really like love those, the series. One of my favorite books is Where the Mountain Meets the Moon by Grace Lynn, and um, I just really liked it because it had such like a good plot, and there were some really fun stories in there, and um, sent like a really good message because lots of times like you're wondering like what's the importance of life, and it kind of expresses that. Mine is the crossover. I really liked reading it because for one I like basketball, and then it really teaches life doesn't always go as planned. I'm going to say Inkspell by Cornelia Funk because it basically has magic and mystery in it. So, like, if you're bored on, like, a weekend, you should read that book because it has very cool adventures for you. My favorite book is The Thief Lord that I'm currently reading. I haven't finished it. Like, if you were one of the characters that are in it, it'd tell, like, how you'd have to live and stuff. Do I have to answer that question? I'm actually going to pick one, which is a collection of stories. I can't remember if this is the author's name or if it's the name of the book, but it's called Roadhouse. I just like it because it has a lot of funny stories in it. They're all basically centered, well, almost all of them are centered around one guy. I think there's an old TV show about it. It's like a young adult book or an adult book, depending on what the stories are. But yeah, I think it's really fun to read. I really like the Percy Jackson series because before I read that in third grade, I never really actually liked reading. I had a hard time reading because I never found any good books until I read that series. And that kind of got me started on finding better books that I like. 
My favorite book is All the Answers for Out of Space. It's basically what I like to do is figure out stuff that I want to do when I grow up. So it helped me a lot to understand how outer space works and satellites and meteors and stuff like that work. write folklore off as just simple stories, but it's so much more than that. Today, we're in studio with Professor Jill Rudy from the BYU Department of Humanities to discuss the role of folklore in our communities. Welcome, Jill. We're so glad to have you. Thank you. What I'd like to start with talking about is one of your great areas of expertise that I think is often understood but misunderstood. You study folklore. So let's start off. Give us a definition of folklore. I think the easiest definition of folklore is tradition. But then that's confusing because we already have a word that is tradition. And so then why do we need the word folklore? So I think of folklore, you can think of the two parts of the word as Folk relates to groups, and the lore relates to knowledge. So it's knowledge of groups that involves tradition. And one of the ways um, I, we, we teach it is to think of it as specific expressions. And I, I, that's part of why I like it so much, because it's grounded in something that gets expressed. So it's something people say or do or make or believe that is traditional. And so then tradition becomes the, the important part. What? Because I don't know that we necessarily define, think about defining tradition. But for folklorists, tradition means something that gets repeated. It has continuity over space and time. But one of the coolest things about it is that it varies. You know, the birthday party is never going to be exactly the same because another year has passed. You might sing happy birthday to you, sort of the same way, but but there's going to be something similar and something different. So repetition and variation is a big part of what makes something traditional. Also, we learn it person to person. Okay, folklorists used to say face to face, but we've recognized that with the internet and with computers, these same sorts of expressions get shared, but not face to face, computer to computer, but it's not, you know, the computer's talking, it's, it's people. So it's, it's person to person, it repeats and it varies, and it has some sort of form. So like I said, it, it gets expressed. It, often there's some sort of beginning and end. So like the things people say, a, a proverb is a great example of a tradition, a traditional expression, a penny saved is a penny earned. And that's been out there for who knows how long. If we're in that situation where, where we need to try to teach somebody to save their money, that might pop into our heads and out of our mouths because it's nicer than giving them a lecture about saving money. So these traditional expressions help us get through our lives day to day or to celebrate the big events over a lifetime. And I like that conception of that it helps us get through our experience over a lifetime because I find these expressions of folklore truly are integral to our culture and to us as human beings. So how do you view it that way? What is the integral nature of this? What does it mean to our cultures and our societies to have these expressions? I think it keeps them going. It, it gives us a sense of identity, and because it involves groups, it also gives us a sense of belonging. With my students this semester, I've been wanting them to think about a distinction between culture and society because they both they both involve groups. But for folklore, some way we ask, ask students to actually document when they're in a class these traditional expressions. We ask them to think about the cultural context, which is kind of what you can't see the values, the attitudes, the beliefs that we get from the groups we belong to. And they can be small groups like families or communities, neighborhoods, up to national groups or even kind of global groups of what makes a good person. We kind of hope some of that is a little bit universal. And then a society is more the way those groups are organized. So a society probably is bigger than a family and it probably is even bigger than, I think community implies something more, a little bit more close-knit. So a society might be something bigger, like a nation. 
And I love this kind of nuance that you're bringing to the language here, because we're talking about tradition, we're talking about folklore, we're talking about society, we're talking about culture. And I think that that application of language and how we understand language seems integral to folklore for me. Is that something that you see too? Yes. And I I think I've just noticed recently, I just got back from a folklore conference at UC Berkeley. And I think folklorists for a time really, like I was trained by someone who considers himself a linguistic anthropologist. And so the language aspect was something on our minds a lot. And now I think what seems like on our mind is maybe more how it relates, like you said, to wider groups or other types of expressions beyond kind of the person-to-person that it might get shown in the media or someone on a TV show might say a proverb or tell a fairy tale or in our movies they might be about those same sorts of things. So it it can get picked up in a wider level. But I think that there's something about the way it gets expressed often in language that helps it, helps it continue. And I think that's why this is one of the important things to talk about on our show, because we're really looking at a wide conception of literacy here and that sense of language. And then that also that sense of culture and media is so much a part of what makes us literate, essentially, in our society. And part of that literacy is seeing things in other ways, seeing things in new ways. And that's one of the things I love about folklore is I think it really does help us see things in new ways. And encourages us to to look more broadly, you know, even outside of our own culture. So how do you think that folklore does that? How does it bind us together and yet expand our our viewpoints of society as a whole? I think I think I want to go back to the different types of expression because that's part of what drew me to the study. I was very much an English major, very much attached to books. But when I found out that you could study expressions like verbal stories or like a quilt design or how someone puts together their Christmas decorations or their Christmas dinner. I could use all those skills I learned reading novels or short stories or poems, but I could, I could apply them to how, how intricate the way someone sets their table might be for Thanksgiving dinner or the way that you have to line up on the stairs and in birth order and take a picture before you can go in and open your Christmas presents or something. There's, there's a pattern to that, too. And I appreciate when literacy can be connected to with ways of reading that aren't just words, but that we read what's the world around us. And I think that's an important way to look at it, because literacy really is about how we interact with the world. And folklore is one of the ways we interact with the world. So there's some really interesting connections there that really extend into popular culture and other kinds of representations. You mentioned the representations in movies and films. So a lot of our folklore is kind of co-opted for for other realms. So how does that work when you have an expression in one form that's more of a traditional form and then it's co-opted for more of a, a popular form? That's a huge debate because some some folklorists would say it's it's tainted. It reminds me of a colleague I had in graduate school who would insist that Disney's Cinderella is not folklore because it's a movie, because technically it is exactly the same every time you watch it. And so it doesn't do that thing that I said tradition does, that it repeats and it varies. And so what we keep recognizing is we aren't the same. So when, when we watch Cinderella when we are five, it's going to be different than when we happen to rewatch it when we're the parent watching it with our child. Um, that's something interesting, too, the way that it's seeming like even pop culture is, is starting to get shared intergenerationally or, or literature, like Lord of the Rings, parents teach their children, you need to read this book. I'm sure that it's going to happen with Harry Potter, too. So it can go, pop culture can be shared in a folk way also, not just the folklore ends up in some movie. Which is really interesting to me that there begins to be this blending of context that way, that what we share and find important can be misinterpreted as as one or the other. 
for me, the big thing that comes up is Hans Christian Andersen, right? A lot of people think of those as traditional fairy tales. But when you consider traditional fairy tales, they aren't because they weren't orally initiated. And so, again, in my classes, we have these, this big, you know, discussion of, is Hans Christian Andersen really traditional fantasy? And it can't be because our definition of traditional fantasy is oral. So there's some interesting juxtapositions here that I think are fun for scholars to address. But it's also interesting for us as consumers of all of this to address this. So how, how does this help us understand how we might engage with our families and folklore or engage with traditions or maybe engage with popular culture that represents some of those traditional kinds of things? I think part of the way it works is that, you know, I said it's an expression. It's, it's, it's bounded. It's, it's something shareable. And so there's, there's a product and a process to folklore. And so I think that's but then it's some, you, you said it's something that we want to share. I, that's part of the, the fun part of it is, in a way, no one says you have to celebrate Christmas or you have to have turkey for Thanksgiving dinner if you live in the United States. But tradition sort of creates its own rules, too. And so it's both the process of it and there is something to be shared. And But people make People make choices, but they're guided by these kind of values that are maybe going to say, we're, we're going to do this even if we don't really like turkey, or even if Jello has always been there on the Thanksgiving table, it's still going to be there even if nobody eats it because it's always been there. And there's an interesting tension with all of that type of thing. And I think particularly between parents and children, sometimes this tension can happen, particularly as they grow up to be teenagers, when their conception of what the tradition needs to be and what our conception of it needs to be become disconnected. I know we've had that discussion of, you know, is Thanksgiving the same if you go to a restaurant <laughs> instead of instead of eating it at home? And, and I, I think that's where it's okay to go back to the repetition and variation. I think as, if the group can negotiate enough of the sameness, then that's fine. And one of my professors, Barry Tolkien, says, you know, it's okay. It's okay for tradition to go away if the group doesn't want it or need it anymore. But it doesn't mean all tradition is going to go away. It, there just will be some other type of expression that's going to take its place. And sometimes that expression might come from something that is packaged by popular culture. But it becomes folklore when people take it as their own. And I think that's a wonderful way to look at it because it really does have to become our own. And sometimes our conceptions or even like our children's conceptions versus our conceptions are going to be a little bit different about what that what the meaning is. And going back to what we were discussing earlier, that sense of the meaning that we make out of it also has some connections to it, doesn't it? Yeah. But it's not going to mean the same thing to, to every person. And I think that's part of the value that it that's an expression. And here I'm going to sound like the English professor, but people can interpret it in, in their own ways. And they should be allowed to. And maybe we should just talk more to recognize what what mean what different meanings people might be getting and we might be surprised that people really are attached to some of the same parts of the tradition or it means the same thing to them too and i love that sense of this discussion and what the meaning is and how how we can do that so how do you think those kinds of discussions need to be broached. I, I guess from an English professor perspective, but more of a family kind of perspective, there might be those two differences. And it gets, it gets really tricky because we don't even know how attached we are to some of these things. So I would just suggest that if somehow a, a riff becomes apparent, like we have to decide, are we going to use paper plates or, or china for this traditional meal, that People listen to each other, and someone might say, it's my grandmother's china, so if it's not there, I'm going to feel sad about that. But the person who has to take care of that china may not be the same person who wants the china, and so then they get to say, but uh, washing it, it makes the whole day a little bit more depressing to me. I forget how lovely it was when I have to do that. And so they can maybe negotiate what it means and, and decide Maybe they help wash the dishes or maybe they decide, you know, it's, it's okay that we're together. That's the most important part and we can let 
we can let the China go. And that just shows how integral folklore is to our experience in life. Thank you so much, Jill, for joining us today. You're welcome. Jill Rudy is a professor of humanities specializing in folklore here at BYU. Now it's time for us to step around the librarian's table to talk with librarians from around Utah about kids, books, and life. Today, I will be talking with Whitney Troxell and Ilea Wilkins about one of our favorite books, Ella Enchanted. Welcome, Whitney. Thank you. And welcome, Ilea. Thank you. One of the things that I think is an interesting phenomenon that we have talked about before is that sometimes we read a book and we love it, and then our friend reads a book and they hate it. And that happened to both of you. So let's chat a little bit about the differences as how do we perceive books when we read them and why do the books turn out to be different and we have different feelings about them as different people. So, Ilea, tell us a little bit about this book. Give us kind of a summary of of the book that uh, you disagree with Whitney about. The book is Ella Enchanted by Gail Carson Levine, and it's basically a fractured fairy tale of Cinderella. And I love fractured fairy tales. I think they're very fun. And I read it when I was probably eight or nine, and it was just magical and fun, and I loved Ella and how she was strong, and she was cursed, but she didn't let that define her, and the ending is just my favorite, when it's not just a, and they lived happily ever after, but it talks about why they were happy ever after. Very cool. So, Whitney, you obviously had a different experience with this book. Yes, I did. <laughs> so what what made you dislike it? Well, I first I first tried to read it when it came out, and I couldn't get past the first chapter. I was so bored. Like, I wasn't engaged at all. So a few years went past, and the movie came out, and it was my best friend's favorite book, and she loved it. And she was so appalled that this movie was coming <laughs> out, which fans of the book don't like the movie at all. I quite enjoy the movie, but... <laughs> That's You're not me. a fan of the book. But I'm not a fan of the book, so funny how that works. And I just wasn't engaged. I couldn't relate. I thought, felt the characters were very one-dimensional. Um, and I, too, love fractured fairy tales. There are a few things in this world I enjoy more than a good fractured fairy tale. But this one was almost too fractured. It was, you couldn't, I didn't put it together that it was Cinderella until the very end where... Prince Charmant is putting the slipper on her foot. And there were there were hints throughout it that I was like, oh, this is kind of like Cinderella. But there were enough differences that I was like, well, maybe she's just pulling from a bunch of different fairy tales. The point of a fractured fairy tale to me is to be able to enjoy the differences from the original to the fractured telling and to get more depth. And it just didn't do it for me. I would agree that a lot of the characters do tend to be one-dimensional, but it never bothered me because... It was a fairy tale. And so I didn't need a lot of depth because I was like, well, it's Cinderella. I don't need to get to know the evil stepsisters because I know who they are. Well, I think Whitney would have liked more depth in those characters while I was okay with the roles that they had. What do you think that could have been done differently maybe in the book to help you respond to it better? Is there there some kind of way that the author could have written it differently, you think, that might have helped you respond to it differently? I think what it might have helped is Ella kind of came off as a cliche to me. Mm. Like, she had these strengths and this personality, but she was the clumsy one. It was almost kind of, uh, well, we need to give her a fault, so we'll make her clumsy. <laughs> and there's so many books that, and stories that do that, that it just, it annoyed me. That there, there probably could have been other faults that it would make would have made her more believable. Yeah. But did that change your thoughts on anything? Was that clumsiness part of maybe why you liked Ella or connected with her? I was very clumsy as a child. And I, I think this was also before I started to notice the abundance of clumsiness. So it didn't bother me as much. You know, it, it's interesting seeing this kind of contrast you know, in the conversations that you've had, and especially Whitney with your friend, since it was her favorite, has talking about your differences with this book help you see it in a slightly different light than you may have originally? What do you think, Whitney? Not really, because my friend made it very clear why she liked it. <laughs> when, when, uh, it was very disappointing for her when I told her I had 
I really didn't like the book. And she she told me all the things, and I see why people enjoy it. I really do. And I think part of the problem, I was older when I read it. I was much older. I was reading a lot more young adult books at the time where this is probably more kind of intermediate for a yeah. little bit younger audience. And at that stage, I had come to expect more from books. That's really interesting. I think the time and space that we're in, the experiences we had can definitely can definitely color the way we read a book. A lot of times when we have these kind of disagreements, especially about something we feel so passionately about, it really kind of hurts us when, like your friend, <laughs> when people don't like what we like or we don't have the same experiences. But I think it's it's healthy sometimes just to talk this out and to you know express our opinions and it helps us see things in new light. So what is your opinion on that avenue, Ilya? Do you, do you like talking about books with other people, especially ones that you conflict about? If everyone can be nice about it, I love talking about it. But people do get very passionate, and sometimes feelings can be hurt. But I really like seeing different opinions, especially about books, because it helps me notice things. I get sometimes so immersed that I don't always notice things, and talking to people, even people who didn't like it, helps me appreciate the book more for what it is instead of the world I was in like at that moment. That makes sense. You have... An opinion on that, on controversy? Well, I think it's definitely a learned skill because when you're passionate about something, it becomes a part of you. So hearing someone not like it is almost them saying they don't like part of yourself, which is really hard to hear. But I've learned as I've gotten older that it's okay and that differences are good. And sometimes you can see weaknesses in something that you love, but still be like, you know what, it's okay that it has that because it has all of these other things and it means this to me. So it doesn't matter that it's not perfect and that everyone doesn't love it. It's just good for me. Yeah. And I think I think that's really the healthy place to come to. This kind of controversy is helpful for us to understand books at a deeper level. And it's helpful for us to discuss with our family and friends about all these things. And, and then we can figure out how we feel about it. But just because somebody disagrees doesn't dilute our love of the book. So Ilea, you can still love it. And Whitney, you can still not like it. And it's still a good book. <laughs> Thank you so much, you both, for coming and joining us today in the studio. I want to thank Whitney and Ilea for coming and talking about different opinions about books around the librarian's table. We've had a great show. First, we talked with author Taryn Matheru about how his books about fantasy, monsters, and heroism have helped reluctant readers find a love of reading. Then, we talked with Drs. John Cox and Shannon Task about their recent study on autism. And we spoke with our last guest, Jill Rudy, about the importance of folklore in society. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Natalie Anderson, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting for us next week. Thank you for exploring with us.